On March 7, 1895, 24-year-old Jacob Herzig sat in a New York City courtroom and took in the crowds behind him. Herzig was on trial for fraud and forgery for accruing $40,000 in debt all over the country, more than $1 million today. Despite the charges against him, the journalist reporting the trial noticed that Herzig seemed strangely comfortable. Even in handcuffs, there was something enigmatic about the young man. His eyes were sharp under his circular glasses, and he exuded an air of quiet mystery. His mystique was helped in part by the beautiful young woman who loyally attended every day of his trial. The reporters watched closely as she pinned a boutonniere of white flowers to Herzig's lapel, and a photographer snapped her picture as she left to take her seat. She never gave them her name, but that didn't stop the papers from running stories about her. The mysterious woman by Herzig's side soon became the focus of their pieces, shifting attention away from the crimes Herzig committed, which is exactly what he was hoping for. Despite his best efforts to spin the courts in his favor, the judge ruled that Herzig served six and a half years in Sing Sing, one of New York's most notorious prisons. Herzig's nameless female companion fainted at the news and was carried out of the room. Even Jacob Herzig grew pale at the verdict. The punishment was enough to deter even the most hardened criminals from breaking the law again. But Herzig eventually emerged from prison with a new name, a reinvigorated determination and a hunger to make up for lost time. It wouldn't be long before he was scamming people out of millions of dollars once again, but this time under a different name, George Graham Rice. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're discussing George Graham Rice, otherwise known as Jacob Herzig, a con artist and master swindler who operated in the early 1900s. We'll learn how he got his start on the streets of New York City and how his early prison sentences transformed him from an amateur forger into a full-blown criminal. Next week, we'll hear how Herzig made his way into the stock brokerage business under the name George Graham Rice, eventually known as the Jackal of Wall Street. We'll also see how he once again found himself in prison and learn about the circumstances that drove him underground for the rest of his life.
George Graham Rice was a con artist before America even knew the term. After an early start in forgery and theft, Rice ran various betting and horse racing cons. When his operations were shut down, he moved out west with the Nevada mining boom in the early 1900s, where he got into pump-and-dump stocks. Over the course of his life, Rice was caught multiple times and ended up behind bars for years on end. But no matter how many sentences he served, after each release, Rice picked up right where he left off. After his last arrest, he disappeared off the face of the earth, evading capture for decades while he continued to run cons. George Graham Rice was born Jacob Simon Herzig on June 18, 1870, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. His parents, Simon and Anna Herzig, were Austrian immigrants who moved to New York's Jewish ghetto after the American Civil War. The Herzigs weren't wealthy, but Simon owned a fur business, so Jacob and his five siblings had a comfortable childhood. But with a company to run and a large family to feed, Jacob's parents often left their children to their own devices. Around this time, the Lower East Side was filled with all kinds of criminals, gang members, mobsters, and of course, con artists. It was safe enough for residents, so long as they minded their own business. But from an early age, Jacob was surrounded by lawbreakers, and he was fascinated by them. Though his parents lived a conventional life, the Herzig's neighbors were far more exciting. Young Jacob marveled as the card cheats and thieves sweet-talked their way into the good graces of unsuspecting marks. It wasn't long before the pre-teen started copying these behaviors himself. Jacob was a scrawny child and often found himself on the receiving end of bullying. But following the example of his neighbors, he learned to use his wits to talk his way out of otherwise compromising situations. Jacob also employed their cheating techniques during schoolyard games of marbles. Classmates were constantly losing to the precocious child. And eventually, he tried his hand at forging signatures, often amusing his friends and teachers with his ability to replicate anything scrawled in front of him. As Jacob's father's fur business continued to expand, the family decided it was time to get out of the old neighborhood. So, in 1880, when Jacob was 10, the Herzig family moved into a nicer apartment uptown, complete with a live-in servant. But the distance wasn't enough to keep Jacob away from his hooligan pals. He continued to venture downtown, where he discovered a lifelong love for gambling, betting on horses, and scamming the unsuspecting people around him. For the next eight years, while his two older brothers were groomed to follow in their father's footsteps, Jacob abstained from the family business altogether. Instead, he experimented with minor cons and tricks of his own. Jacob's early exposure to criminal behavior was most likely responsible for his career as a con artist, although his family wouldn't have known this at the time. In the late 1800s, there was no scientific consensus to explain why criminals behaved the way they did. Most theories speculated that crimes were largely motivated by need and greed. But in 1939, a sociologist named Edwin Sutherland proposed a new concept, differential association. 
The idea had an incredible impact on the world of criminology. In his explanation, Sutherland laid out his belief that criminal activity is learned behavior absorbed through interactions with other criminals. Jacob came from an upper middle class family who owned a profitable business and gave their children every opportunity to educate themselves. He didn't need to steal money. Instead, he committed crimes because he found it enjoyable and preferred the lifestyle that the extra cash from ripping people off afforded him. By the age of 18, Jacob racked up several debts from gambling on horse races. To pay them off, he stole from his father's fur business. After processing several fraudulent checks, Simon caught his son red-handed and had him arrested. But he didn't press charges, worried that the scandal would harm the family business. Instead, Simon sent Jacob abroad to Europe, hoping that some time away from his beloved Lower East Side would put him back on the straight and narrow. When Jacob was summoned back a few months later, Simon chose to believe that his son had turned over a new leaf. He gave Jacob a job in his business's accounting department, hoping to teach him the value of money and put him on a more honest path. But as soon as he returned to the United States, Jacob resumed his old habits. And this time, he was especially interested in cultivating his tough guy image. In 1889, 19-year-old Jacob assumed his first nom de plume, Joseph Hart. At the same time that he was trying out new names, Jacob was also playing around with his appearance. He started putting a lot of thought into it. Even as an adult, Jacob could be considered scrawny, five foot seven and very skinny. But what he lacked in height, he made up for in lavish suits and perfectly styled hair. Jacob understood that maintaining an image was a crucial part of gaining people's interest. And soon, he'd learn the importance of an aura of mystery as well. Around this time, he went to see heavyweight champion John L. Sullivan at a boxing exhibition. Jacob was struck by the secrecy surrounding Sullivan before the fight. No one was allowed to lay eyes on him until he came into the ring. After the show, Jacob sought out Sullivan's manager and asked why his team had gone to such great lengths to hide the boxer. The manager responded, The public demands that they be mystified and to have shown people off the stage that Mr. Sullivan is just a plain, ordinary mortal would disillusion them. This idea of mystification intrigued Jacob. Beyond just concocting elaborate cons, he started to think about how to market them. A couple of months after returning from Europe, Jacob abandoned his post at the family business. He had no interest in a nine-to-five. Instead, the 19-year-old left New York with no warning and embarked on an eight-month spree of gambling, forgery and fraud. During this time, Jacob traveled all over the West Coast running up debts, then settling them using his impeccable forgery skills to sign checks in his father's name. Despite the fact that his own son was stealing from him, Simon Herzig honored every check Jacob wrote, hoping to spare his family the public embarrassment. But privately, he had the police track his son down, using the bank locations of each withdrawal as a money trail. 
By the time Jacob was caught, he'd stolen more than $20,000 from his father's business, more than half a million dollars today. This time, when Jacob was brought back to his parents, they sent him to the Elmira Reformatory in West New York. Simon and Anna Herzig believed even then that their criminal son could change his ways. He was committed on April 30th, 1890, just a few months shy of his 20th birthday. Elmira was the first of its kind. When the reformatory opened its doors in 1876, its goal was to rehabilitate its prisoners rather than punishing them. But in that time, many of the institution's residents tried to take advantage of that goodwill. And in response, the superintendent, Zebulon Brockway, started implementing cruel practices to ensure that the residents stayed in line. Unbeknownst to Jacob's parents, by the time he was committed, terrible conditions and barbaric punishments had made Elmira one of the harshest prisons in America. During his time in Elmira, Jacob developed a permanent bump at the base of his skull, consistent with head trauma that didn't have the chance to heal properly. But despite the harsh treatment that he received, Elmira also introduced Jacob to a whole new community of criminals to learn from. The men at the reformatory were able to swap secrets of the trade while locked away. It was in his final months at Elmira that Jacob met Willie Graham Rice, a newspaper reporter convicted of falsifying banknotes. Jacob and Willie shared their fondness for gambling, and Jacob was eager to learn from the more experienced forger. He was also clearly partial to Willie's surname. During this time, Willie managed to escape from the reformatory after sweet-talking Zebulon Brockway into letting him attend a military event. But he was caught weeks later and taken back to Elmira by force. Not long after, he died in his cell under mysterious circumstances. Though Willie's death was never fully investigated, it was only further evidence of the atrocities committed in the reformatory at the time. After 20 months, Jacob was released from Elmira on December 24, 1892, after being granted special parole contingent on eight months of probation. He was 22 years old, but as soon as he was free, the young conman would leap right back into his life of crime. Coming up, Jacob Herzig transforms himself into George Graham Rice and tries his hand at a new kind of con. Now back to the story. After his release from a grueling 20-month stay at the notoriously cruel Elmira Reformatory, Jacob Herzig emerged a changed man but not in the ways his parents had hoped. Armed with new knowledge and tricks of the trade he'd learned from other inmates, Jacob was more confident than ever in his ability to pull off even greater acts of financial fraud. And so, he doubled down on his crimes. Within weeks of his release, he was traveling the country once again. But this time, he had company. 16-year-old Teramutus Myrtle Ivy, the daughter of a Canadian minister that he persuaded to run away with him. 
The pair spent months living large, gambling away all their earnings, and forging checks from the Herzig Furrier brothers' business. As before, Jacob's father Simon honored all the payments. But this time, Jacob's parents weren't the only ones looking for him. The police, Teremutis's father, and the Columbia National Bank were all desperate to catch the young man and his runaway sweetheart. Ultimately, the couple's crime spree lasted 16 months before it all came crashing down. On November 8, 1894, 24-year-old Jacob was arrested in New York while trying to cash a forged check. He was held in the Tombs Jail in Manhattan until his trial on March 7, 1895. During that time, Teremutis never left his side. She followed his every instruction, like pinning the white flowers to his lapel and never revealing her name to the reporters who found her so fascinating. Jacob also feigned ignorance of his crimes, claiming that he had no idea why he was being charged. He told the court, I know that I am under indictment for some forgery. That is all I do know about it. But despite his best efforts to create an aura of mystery, Jacob was sentenced to Sing Sing Prison in upstate New York for a total of six and a half years. Now facing more than half a decade of jail time, Jacob realized that having a loyal contact on the outside would prove useful. And so he convinced a well-meaning prison reverend to marry him and Teremutis in a secret ceremony on the train to Sing Sing. But there would be no honeymoon. Jacob entered Sing Sing a few hours later. At the time, Sing Sing was well known for flogging and whipping its prisoners and forbidding inmates to speak to one another. And as a result of the terrible conditions, the prison had an abnormally high suicide rate. Jacob was fully aware of Sing Sing's reputation before his sentencing, which is why he'd made a contingency plan. Teramutis Myrtle Ivy. He'd married 16-year-old Teramutis in the hope that she'd be a loyal accomplice on the outside, someone he could count on to advocate for him legally, as well as to smuggle in money and banned goods. But Teramutis wasn't actually much help. She lacked the intelligence to assist Jacob with the appeals process and the grit to navigate the prison's black market. So on one of her weekly visits to see Jacob, he unceremoniously told her to leave and never return. He would manage Sing Sing on his own. Four years later, in 1899, 29-year-old Jacob somehow managed to sweet-talk his way into a transfer to Auburn Prison near Syracuse, New York. Relieved to be free of Sing Sing, Jacob adopted a quiet demeanor and remained on his best behavior. He served as the assistant to the chaplain and became the editor for the inmate newspaper, Star of Hope. Jacob's efforts worked. In less than a year, he secured an early release. At the beginning of 1900, after five years behind bars, Jacob emerged from Auburn Prison a free man. As he re-entered society, he vowed to start a new life for himself. As part of this promise, he dropped the name Jacob Herzig forever, referring to himself only as George Graham Rice 
from that moment on. George Graham Rice was far more careful than Jacob Herzig had been. By now, he'd spent a total of seven years in the care of a prison system that treated men like animals, and he wasn't eager to return. But that didn't mean he went on to live a simple life. After his release, he couldn't help but be drawn to the luxurious lifestyle he'd grown accustomed to before prison. After returning to New York City, Rice ingratiated himself into the richest social circles of the Big Apple. He found there was another way to live the high life, by marrying into it. While in prison, he had his marriage to Teramutis annulled. Now a free and single man, Rice set his sights on Francis Drake, a former journalist who had become a well-known actress. Rice may have been attracted to her independent spirit and intelligence, but a far more likely draw was her pocketbook. Drake was a wealthy woman and loved to spend her money on her friends and family. Soon after his release, Rice courted Drake under his new identity. He never talked about his past, focusing all of his attention on wooing his new conquest instead. It wasn't long until Drake fell for him. The pair got married on June 13, 1900, just a couple of days shy of Rice's 30th birthday. Rice had avoided his family after his release from prison, but his father, Simon, somehow discovered the marriage. He sent Francis Drake a letter congratulating her on the nuptials, but also warning Drake about her new husband's true identity. He wanted to make sure that she knew what she was getting herself into. When Drake confronted Rice about the letter, he confessed to everything. But with one minor adjustment, he painted his father as the villain of the story, explaining that he was conspiring against him. His performance was convincing, and Francis took him at his word. But marital bliss soon settled into boredom. After their wedding, Drake returned to the stage, and Rice, without a wife to keep him entertained, found himself itching to return to old habits. Even though he'd spent years behind bars because of his gambling habits, Rice couldn't control his need to bet money on horse races and card games. And there was a good reason for this. While gambling wasn't recognized as an addiction at the time, the American Psychiatric Association officially classified it as a disorder in the 1980s. Like other impulse control disorders, those who are addicted to gambling find themselves constantly seeking out the high that comes with winning. Every time they finish first, their brains are flooded with dopamine. And eventually, it gets harder and harder to feel that same thrilling sensation, forcing addicts to take even greater and greater risks. This may explain why, in the late summer of 1900, Rice was once again swimming in debt. He moved to New Orleans to be closer to the country's most famous gambling venues. But the proximity was financially disastrous for him. Without access to his family's checkbook, and possibly because he was too scarred from prison to take illegal means, Rice was forced to get a job to pay back his creditors. 
Without revealing too much about his past, Rice managed to use his newspaper experience from Auburn Prison to get a job as a reporter at the Times Democrat in New Orleans. Rice was originally hired as a local reporter, but he quickly grew tired of the job. Then on September 8, 1900, Rice saw an opportunity to make a fortune with his new gig. A tidal wave hit Galveston, Texas, causing massive flooding across the island and inflicting a huge amount of structural damage. Rice knew that if he had the first scoop on the disaster, he controlled the story. He could sell it to the highest bidder and make more money with one article than he could in an entire month's worth of reporting. So, ignoring warnings from officials and the immediate dangers of the storm, Rice made his way to Texas and saw the damage firsthand. He wrote detailed, heartbreaking articles embellishing what he saw in the wake of the disaster. Rice was the only reporter with direct access to the site, giving him a leg up on his competitors, who were working with second-hand details and filtered information. Within days, the public was clamoring for more. As he predicted, newspapers all over the country were interested in getting the full scoop of the damage in Texas. So, despite being employed by the Times Democrat, Rice started a bidding war and sold a first-person feature and a follow-up series to the New York Herald. He received $5,000 in total for the piece, approximately $150,000 today. Of course, this was nothing compared to the money Rice was accustomed to having, but it was still enough for him to settle his debts and return to New York, eager to make a name for himself as a reporter. After all these years, he was finally going straight. But news of his betrayal of the Times Democrat eventually reached the New York Herald. By early 1901, 31-year-old George Graham Rice was unemployed and broke once again. On March 5th, 1901, Rice had $7.30 to his name, no job, and his relationship with his wife had completely deteriorated. Desperate and lacking any alternatives, he leaned on his criminal roots once again, hanging around the racetracks and looking for naive betters he could swindle. It was there that he ran into an old acquaintance, Dave Campbell. Campbell was another racetrack aficionado, and as the two got to talking, he decided to entrust Rice with a tip from his friend, a horse hustler based in New Orleans. He had an inside scoop on an upcoming race. Campbell explained that one of the horses, Silver Coin, had been held back in previous rounds in order to up the odds against him winning. Now, because of that strategy, the odds on Silvercoin were 10 to 1. Anyone who bet on him and won would receive 10 times their return. Rice was immediately intrigued. An insider tip like this could mean an enormous payout. So he checked the upcoming races and was elated to learn that Silvercoin was slated to race the very next day. Rice did some calculations. If he invested all of his money on silver coin, he would only get $70 from his efforts. Rice came up with a different plan. It was far riskier, but if he succeeded, it had the potential to make him a wealthy man once again. 
With Campbell in tow, Rice spent his last $7 on an advertisement in a prominent horse racing newspaper, urging fellow gamblers to bet on silver coin in the upcoming race. In the ad, he wrote that the information came from a brand new turf advisory bureau, Maxim and Gay, a name he made up on the spot that, in his mind, sounded regal and intriguing. As soon as the newspaper ad was taken care of, Rice then rented out an office space on credit, found some old furniture, and drew up signs for his new firm. In less than 24 hours, the phony Maxim and Gay was in business. Rice had no way of knowing whether Silvercoin would, in fact, win, but it was too late. He'd spent his very last penny setting up a con with incredible risk. He just hoped to God he'd made the right decision. Coming up, George Graham Rice's cons evolved to catch the attention of the government. Now, back to the story. In March of 1901, with only $7.30 to his name, 30-year-old George Graham Rice put all his money down on an entirely new type of con, horse racing. After hearing an inside tip that predicted silver coin would win an upcoming race under 10 to 1 odds, Rice jumped on the opportunity. But instead of making his bet, he created a phony company called Maxim and Gay, a turf advisory bureau that circulated the lead. His hope was that once fellow gamblers realized that his tip was good, they'd come back to him for more leads, which he would happily sell for $5 a pop about $150 today. He had no idea if the scheme would work, but now, without a penny left to his name, Rice had no other choice but to wait and see if the gambit paid off. The next day, Silvercoin won the race, just as predicted by a narrow margin. Finally, Rice could breathe a sigh of relief. The most crucial part of his con had gone off without a hitch. But Rice was still painfully aware that that was no guarantee that his plan would work. The day after the race, Rice and Campbell walked to their brand new office discussing their plan. They'd had another tip prepared, a horse named Annie Loretta, a mare with even more of a long shot than Silvercoin. The odds against her were a staggering 40 to 1. But, according to their source, she was slated to win in the race that very afternoon. As the two men kept walking, they passed an unruly line stretching around the block. The impatient crowd was being held back by frazzled policemen who seemed thoroughly unprepared for the chaos. Rice and Campbell looked at each other. What on earth could be causing such a commotion? But as they approached their building, they realized with shock that the line went up to their door. The commotion was for their sham business, and it was only going to get crazier. George Graham Rice and Dave Campbell struggled past the crowd to get inside their new office. Their plan had worked beyond their wildest dreams. Now the only problem was managing the long queue waiting outside. They came up with a strategy. They distribute the tip in bulk, delivering it to customers in an envelope that they could open after they'd paid Rice and Campbell 
the duo immediately got to work stuffing envelopes and collecting bills. As they moved through the line of eager customers, the money continued to pile up, filling their desk drawers until they overflowed. In desperate need of more space, Rice emptied their waste paper basket and put it on the ground in front of his desk, telling customers to throw the money inside. At a certain point, Rice and Campbell stopped counting bills. Their only concern was getting through the massive crowd. By the end of the day, after serving 551 new subscribers, Maxim and Gay made $2,755, more than $80,000 today. The very next day, Annie Loretta came in second place. But because the odds of her winning were 40 to 1, anyone who put money down on the long shot received a return of 20 times their initial bet. On their second day in business, Maxim and Gay had already proved to the gamblers of New York that their services were worth every penny. They were a literal overnight success. Rice immediately hired Campbell for $10 a day, and with the help of their New Orleans source, they rapidly built their fledgling business into an empire. The firm grew at an extraordinary rate, and on just their sixth day of operating, Maxim and Gay brought in $10,000. Using the mountains of cash flooding their offices, 31-year-old Rice hired more informants from tracks in New York and DC and began advertising with full-page ads. A year after they started, in March of 1902, Maxim and Gay had 64,000 daily subscribers. By that fall, Rice brought in $1 million in profits, almost $31 million today. Though gambling was illegal, men like Rice got away with it by bribing local authorities with a trick called the mob. Criminal behavior and con artist expert Dr. David Mauer describes the mob tactic as a network of con artists who all work together to evade arrest. Most commonly, these scammers will own a large piece of an illegal business, as Rice did with his betting scheme. For Rice's scheme to work, building his mob was essential to the con. He needed people willing to break the law in multiple circumstances, such as the insider informants on the racetracks, the employees with him in the office, and the police officers looking the other way for a piece of the action. This meant that each piece of the network was equally guilty in the criminal activity being committed, incentivizing them all to keep quiet, including the police officers. Because of this, Rice was able to operate without worrying about interference from New York's finest. But it wasn't long before his greed got the best of him. Though the firm was successful beyond their wildest dreams, Rice wanted more and he built the infrastructure to make that possible. Because Maxim and Gay's recommendations now had a tangible effect on the betting market, Rice soon realized that he could manipulate the odds in his favor. He started pointing his subscribers to horses that had a lower chance of winning and keeping the real insider information for himself, so the odds would be even higher and he would make more money. But regardless of how much he made, he inevitably turned around and gambled it all away. 
The cycle was growing more vicious by the day, and Rice found himself needing even more money. So, in the winter of 1902, 32-year-old Rice started a new service for his most loyal customers. Instead of sending $5 daily for betting tips, gamblers could simply send in the money that they wanted to put down, and Maxim and Gay would place bets for them. In return, the company would charge $10 weekly, plus a 5% commission on the winnings. The tactic was wildly successful. Rice now had access to an even larger source of cash, and whenever he could, he pocketed the money instead of betting it like he promised his customers. Many times the horse lost, so Rice didn't have to pay a dime anyway. It was money his clients wouldn't miss. But even when the horse won, Rice always found a way to make sure the house won too. On one occasion, Rice decided not to bet his customers cash on a horse that won with 10 to 1 odds. As a result, he owed his subscribers $130,000. However, instead of panicking, Rice simply took out an advertisement in the paper, touting the win. Soon, new subscribers flooded in, and the business made $150,000 in a single day. Eventually, Rice's business grew too big for New York alone. In the winter of 1902, Maxim and Gay moved down to New Orleans and Rice bought off the local officials there in the same way he had up north. But, unfortunately for George Graham Rice, his latest con put him in the crosshairs of an authority that wasn't so easily bought off, the federal government. Mail-order betting was high on the government's list of crackdowns. And unbeknownst to Rice, when he began accepting bets via the post across state lines, he was involving the United States Postal Service in his con, meaning he was breaking federal law. And with Maxim and Gay raking in hundreds of thousands of dollars on a weekly basis, his chances of flying under the radar were slim. But that didn't stop Rice from trying. The con man tried to hide his operations by moving the company's official mailing address to a basement in New York while keeping their offices in New Orleans. But it didn't take long for the feds to catch on. In June of 1903, the government officially opened a case on Maximum Gay and the 32-year-old businessman running it. At the district attorney's behest, an undercover detective from the NYPD wrote a letter to the firm explicitly asking to gamble by mail. Maximum Gay signed him up for $30 on a three-horse race. An entire team of police officers watched carefully as an envelope of cash was delivered to the basement on 46th Street. Unaware that a squad of cops was around the corner, Rice signed for the letter himself. Then, at the signal from their commanding officer, the team swarmed the office and arrested a shocked Rice. The case, however, never made it to court, and Rice managed to weasel out of custody on a $1,000 bail, an impressive feat that was no doubt done with the aid of expensive lawyers. But Rice knew that the company's days were numbered. 
Had he chosen to be patient or to keep a low profile, he might have been able to preserve Maximum Gay. But Rice was always one to swing for the fences. Instead of playing it safe, Rice decided to rip off as much money from the firm as he possibly could before it collapsed. He raised his commissions to 25%, collecting as much as he could until the government officially shut the company down in the winter of 1903. The post office slapped a formal fraud order on Maxim and Gay, forbidding them from using their services again. And after everything, when the company officially shuttered, 33-year-old Rice found himself once again without a penny to his name. He'd spent it all. Rice returned to New York City. Even without cash to burn, his addiction took hold of him. He became known as a racetrack plunger, a gambler who bets absurdly high amounts of money on races, which will either leave him deeply in debt or riding high. Over the course of the summer in 1903, Rice won $100,000, lost it all again, won another $50,000, and gambled it all away in a couple of days. By September of 1904, 34-year-old George Graham Rice owed $8,000 to creditors. The bookies pressured him to pay back the money, but Rice, who'd grown tired of the cycle, decided it was time for a fresh start. So he packed up all of his belongings and moved to the West Coast, where he hoped to find a simple life. But it didn't take long before Rice found new fraudulent opportunities out West. As biographer T.D. Thornton wrote in his book, My Adventures With Your Money, Rice would rather work twice as hard to steal 50 cents than to earn an honest buck. The con man had already shown a propensity for making millions from pure shrewdness and publicity. But the relatively underdeveloped West Coast provided him with a new frontier of opportunities. More specifically, a whole new population to swindle. California and Nevada were flooded with people who'd packed up their lives and moved west, all on the promise of discovering gold and silver nuggets and getting rich quick. And before long, Rice found a way of funneling their hopes and dreams directly into his wallet. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of George Rice. We'll follow the con artist as he starts up a new scam in Nevada, selling worthless mining stocks all on the false promise of discovering silver. We'll also see how the authorities got wind of his new scheme, forcing him to spend the rest of his days on the run in hiding. For more information on George Graham Rice, amongst the many sources we used, we found My Adventures With Your Money by T.D. Thornton extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Con Artists was written by Liz Dorovitsen, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden. Thank you.